Stone Chats, Small Talks About Homeschooling, presented by Wildwood Curriculum, a Charlotte Mason education for all. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Stone Chats, where we try to speak eloquently about what we know about Charlotte Mason and a Charlotte Mason education and how how we're trying to work it all out at Wildwood. I'm Jennifer Gaiman. I have five children. And today I'm with Marjorie Lang. And I have two children and I have five children. So I have two children that are mine and that I raised from birth. And I've got three stepchildren that came to us. Um, the oldest moved in with us when he was 15. And the younger two never lived with us. But they're all adults except for my seven-year-old. So I'm starting a Charlotte Mason education from the very beginning and I get to walk through with all of the wonderful knowledge that I've gained from other people and reading the uh, Charlotte Mason books and the PNEU programs and writing curriculum myself. We are also here with... Hi everyone, I'm Miriam and I'm so glad to be here with all of your experience. <laughs> I have two children, seven-year-old and eight-year-old. And I'm here as the newbie to ask questions from much more experienced mamas in the Charlotte Mason path. Okay, so today we're going to start, um, we're going to talk about writing, writing through the years. We're going to start, um, what our, our plan is, is to do the first half of um, what did Charlotte Mason expect, uh, as we can see through the PNEU programs. And then once we have finished with that, we will go into our own experience um, of what we've done and how that worked for our kids or how that did not work for our children. So let's start with uh, from the very beginning. Form one, this is approximate ages six to nine. And at this point, composition was almost exclusively oral narration. I want to start off by saying, actually, before we even get into that, that we're, we're working on Form 3 right now. We're writing Form 3. So as we're writing Form 3, we're also looking ahead to Forms 4, 5, and 6, so we can do this overarching, get a good view, a big picture view of what we need to be setting up for the next years. And so we've already finished writing Forms 1 and 2, and so now we're getting this huge picture of how... Charlotte Mason did things from the beginning to the end. And we've seen that the progression throughout the years is very step-by-step. Step. Everything builds on the next. She never expected more than what most children would be capable of at that, that point. But it also wasn't, it wasn't light. But I've seen elsewhere, and also I felt this way myself several years ago, was that a Charlotte Mason writing education was purely narration and everything was just supposed to fall into place. And while that is partially true, that is not completely true. So let's talk first about form one writing. Do you want to talk about that, Jennifer, or do you want me to start? Well, just before you top in, I also think that we need to clarify that when we're talking about writing, we are talking about composition. We're talking about the creation of our ideas and putting them out on paper. And that's separate from, but obviously linked to copy work, where we actually learn to physically make letters and put them together, and grammar, where we learn how the words should go together to make sense. And yeah, and so sometimes when we say writing, we're talking about 
you know, oh, today he didn't want to do his writing, and what we really mean is his copy work. Or we that so that term can be kind of muddy, or it can be an umbrella term for lots of things. But today we're actually going to talk about composition, which is the creation of their own thoughts that they then put on paper to convey their ideas to a wider audience. Right. Right. Handwriting is separate from writing. Yeah. Um, because she did really separate out those mechanics. Because when a, a child might have great ideas, but doesn't have the physical stamina or the um, dexterity to actually write that down yet. So when we're talking about writing, we're definitely just talking about the composition. Well, and when our children are young, sometimes the mechanics of getting it out there onto a piece of paper or a typewriter means that it's hard to hang on to the ideas. So it, it's, there's a balance when you're trying to figure out what it is we're talking about and how you're going to go forward with it. Right. And she definitely did develop those two things completely separately. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So starting with form one, do you want to start with that or do you want me to start? Um, no, I can speak to it and then you can correct me because, well, I helped write the curriculum. It's been a long time since I did form one. But okay. form one, the composition part of it is really done through narration. It's the idea that you would interact with the text and then you want to respond to the text. And it isn't always about facts, although often when our children are younger, that's what their narrations include. What did you read? I read that they went here, they did this, then they did that. But their narrations can also be what they thought about what they read. Where they, did it remind them of anything else? Did anything else that they read connect with that? Those are all of ideas. You're, you're wanting them to think deeply about what they read and what it means and what it means to them and what it means to the world and how it applies to other stuff that they've read or know. At the level they're able to. You're not going to get a six-year-old answering those questions. But that's really what the point of narration is to start small and work up. So in form one, you're just really focusing on having them respond to a text in whatever way they're capable of. And it might be really small. It may be one sentence or maybe even one word. And they have to, that's where the beauty of habit comes in. You build up and build more. Right. Yes, I would add that in form one, the writing is almost exclusively oral narration. Um, so that ages six to nine, it's just the child. There's a lot of recalling. So what happened in the text is not, while you will get some interaction with the text, the main things that you're looking for is um, building that habit of paying attention to what is being read or what is being read to them. Being able to recall what that is, organize it in their head, and then bring it back out. So you're, I don't want to jump ahead. So, no. <laughs> which I did, I jumped ahead. <laughs> so what you're doing here is your the child is organizing thoughts, but it's based on a model. It's based on one that they've just heard. So they're not having to take their own original thoughts, organize them, and put them out. They're taking somebody else's thoughts, taking somebody else's language, bringing them in, and then putting them back out. This is them interacting with the material. They really don't need to be doing the deep thoughts and analysis at this point. And the no. discussion is actually separate also. Definitely we want to discuss, but we don't want to discuss in place of, instead of 
the oral narration. Right. So this is what form one is. There are some curricula that say that written narration should not start until age 10. But what we found actually in the PNEU programs is in the final year of form 1A, which is going to be approximate age 8 to 9, depending on when your child started or which just really what level you have your child in, that's when you get an occasional written narration. So that occasional written narration is going to be, I'd say, about once a month. You're not going to be doing it often. You're going to limit it to 10 minutes. You don't want to say, okay, now you need to write down everything you just said to me because we just want to gradually introduce the idea that a written narration is what they would normally say, but we're still going to have that time limit. We're not going to make them write, 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 write and overwhelm them. You still want to stick to 10 minutes and that is actually specifically stated in the timetables um, from a liberal education for all an occasional written narration 10 minutes I love it then we move on to form 2 form 2 begins consistent written narration you're still doing oral narration but in the first year of form 2 this is form 2b you want to add one written narration per day, again, of only 10 minutes. Now, let me finish on um, Form 2 before I come back to that. And then Form 2A, which is the second two years of Form 2. Form 2 is about approximate ages 9 to 12. That's going to increase to two written narrations per day, also of 10 minutes each. So if we go back to Form 2A, though, you're doing one written narration per day. If your kids have not done any written narration, you're not going to start off with one per day. Even if they started off in um, Form 1A, that occasional written narration, like once a month, your child is probably still not going to be doing one written narration per day. You want to work up to that. So maybe you'll do one a week in the first term and then maybe in the second term you will work that even even more and do um, work up to two a week and then three a week but by the end of the year you definitely ideally would want to be doing one written narration per day and again only 10 minutes each and then do you want to talk about that Jennifer now that I've oh. given you that <laughs> given you that is there anything you wanted to say I, I don't think so. I mean, I, as you're talking, I'm just thinking back on, um, because this is not how writing worked in my home for lots of reasons. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later. So I like that it's slow and it's progressive and it builds, um, but it does have to build. So you're right. If you, you can't just start, if you're starting newly with Wildwood, you can't look at, you know, to a upper and be like, oh yes, so we have to be doing two narrations a day if your child has never done that. It's it's a sequential learning of a skill. And it's, so it has to be done sequentially, which means so you might have to back up and go slower and do less and work up to that ability. It's like exercise. You can't do a hundred sit-ups. Well, I'm sure some people can, but if your child can't do a hundred <laughs> sit-ups right off the bat, then you're going to have to work up to doing a hundred sit-ups. Right. And um, in Form 2, we're still not 
asking for the child to analyze any material. And we're not asking for them to make connections with other things that they're, that they're reading or writing. If they do, that's wonderful. But if they don't, that is not an expectation yet at this age. We are still doing that oral, you're still doing all of the oral narration after each lesson that can be orally narrated in form two. But then some of those are going to be written. And we're not going to expect, we're not doing reports. We're not doing, um, what else do kids do? Book reports is something that... No book reports, that, no, no no those folding projects like a, like a science report. No reports at all. Right. The only yep. expectations for lessons is written narrations that follow their oral narrations. That no follow the format. No comprehension questions, no comprehension worksheets. My children always found those really weird when they encountered them in the outside world. Right. What did Johnny do? Or what color was the car that went down the street? I just thought those were odd questions. <laughs> Thinking, do we care? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was important. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> so from there, we have our sequence at this point is oral narration. And then that is added an occasional written narration is added. And then you do one written narration per day while you're still doing oral narration. And then you do two written narrations per day while you're still doing oral narration. And that's what you do for the first six years of a Charlotte Mason education. Now, as Jennifer said, if you're jumping into Charlotte Mason education late, you don't want to necessarily spend six years doing that for one thing but you also don't want to jump in midstream you need to build up to it so then we move on to form three form three is approximate ages 12 to 14 and we're going to continue to build on that foundation but what we do here is now that they're at that 12 to 14 age range when different brain development um brain connections have been made. I'm not even going to talk about Piaget, but <laughs> then we're going to begin expecting our students to manipulate the information that they're reading. We want to assimilate it and we want to work with it. We want to make different connections, mold it into different formats, and you're going to start adding some basic literary analysis. Mm -hmm. That's the part I loved. That's the part I was able to do. But the actual writing of that out, we, we struggled with quite extensively. So, Okay, so at this point, they're doing, um, in 3B, they're doing composition for, well, in Form 3, they're, they're doing composition for about an hour a week. Now that's total over the entire week. You could do it. Eh, I'm not, I can't remember exactly how the timetable stated. Um, it might have been for a full hour. It might have been split up for two half-hour sessions. I'm just not sure. I'd have to look it up. I think it's um, two half-hour sessions. Okay. In the programs, rather than just the writing of the narrations that were expected as part of the other subjects, now you're having a specific time slots for writing composition. So this is really where you're, you're beginning specific instruction now rather than just having the children writing their oral narrations. We're also getting into questions on the exam 
on the exams, they had questions like write a letter accepting or giving an invitation and Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver meet, tell of their conversation. So we're no longer simply asking our children to narrate. Now we're asking them to use the skills that they've gained from their three years of written narrations and six years of oral narrations. So their brains are also at a different level. So now they can start bringing in other connections. They're connecting between books that they've read and hopefully through discussions, not through narrations, but through discussions in the past, you've modeled this to them and they've, they've been making connections on their own anyways, but we're not expecting them to produce this on paper until they're at this junior, junior high level of 12 to 14 years. So you're still writing two narrations per day. They don't have to be limited to 10 minutes. But that's what you're doing in Form 3. You're interacting with the material. You're analyzing the material. You're, you're teaching specific things like how to write a letter, how to write an invitation. Perhaps how to address an envelope would be appropriate here, too. That's something that I didn't realize that my daughter did not know until she was about 18 years old because we don't write letters anymore. <laughs> well, she's so not, she's not alone in that skill nowadays <laughs> right <laughs> that is so sad hmm. um you're doing practical practical writing as well as the literary analysis as well as and we, we're not talking about deep themes here we're just talking about basic literary literary and literary analysis so did you want to add anything about that one i nope. feel like i'm doing all the talking here but we'll, well get to you soon <laughs> but you're covering it so thoroughly i have nothing to add all right so then we transition to form four and form four is filled with essays they're the students are reading essays they're writing essays. They're reading more essays. They're also doing more and deeper literary analysis. This is what you're starting in Form 4. You're still doing everything that you've done up to that point, but you're adding the essays. And this is where I think a lot of people miss in the Charlotte Mason education is they don't realize that for four years you are doing essays and essays and essays but it's not the child isn't expected to jump into it it's they're not really expected to write a lot of essays until they've had a chance to read many essays and we're not talking also about um we're not talking about reading other students' essays that another student wrote in high school, right? We're talking about what the, the kinds of essays that they were reading were literary type essays. There were, at the time, there would be, um, essays sent to places like the New York Times and such. And they were reading those sorts of, these essays that were written in the paper and they would be collected and sent out in books and um, essays were a huge part of, of the culture at that time. The literary collection, maybe that's a good word to say, but that's 
that's what people, people were expected to be able to write essays and they weren't saved specifically for academia the way it is now. So in forms five and six then, we're also going to be adding in writing a good praesis. This is a summary or an abstract. Um, they're writing character sketches and they're writing opinions on news of the day. So now at this point, we have our progression from the very, very beginning to the end looks like oral narration and then you add occasional written narration and then you add one written narration per day of 10 minutes and then you add two written narrations per day of 10 minutes. Then they begin using the information rather than simply narrating it. And they're using outside writing skills and narration. Then they're adding some essays. And then they're adding even more essays plus character sketches and summaries. So each skill builds on the last. This is done over 10, uh, over a 12 year period. We're not rushing anything. Everything is covered, but it's covered in its own time. We're not starting to write essays when they're 8 or 10 years old so that they're prepared to write essays when they're 15. That's, go ahead. Well, and I think that um, Charlotte had a real love of the how the brain developed and grew. And so you can see that her understanding even that long ago is that like there's a big brain development and integration happens when children are eight or nine. And then there's another big explosion in the brain when children are 13 and 14. And so it's interesting to me that biologically speaking, when she added in gearing things up is when the brain was actually growing enough to be able to handle more of those skills. I, I find it fascinating how intuitive she was and how much she understood about the growth and development of children and how she mapped her educational philosophy to that. Very exciting. Right. So now let's talk about what happened with our own children. You want to go first? You want me to? <laughs> I want you to go because you have a much more successful story than I do. Well, I have a successful story. It's successful with lots of stumbling and in spite of, I think, almost what I did. So my first problem encountered is you're supposed to add written narration in when they're eight or nine. And I did not have readers. I had late readers. My oldest daughter did not read until she was almost nine. And once she did, she very quickly, she went from reading um, phonics books to reading Little Women within about six months. So it really rolled in there fast, but you can't suddenly just jump in and start writing because she hadn't had a lot of experience of her own reading. And so right off the hop, I felt like, oh, I'm not doing this right. And so I just kind of slowed it down. And so we continue to do lots of oral narration all the way through, but our writing really stumbled. And then my third child, he has severe dysgraphia and inability to handwrite. And so I couldn't even do copy work with him. And he was an even later reader. He didn't read until he was 12. And so then I had this one child. He's my, I have five. So he's the one right in the middle. And so everything just felt like molasses in January, as far as the writing was concerned. I couldn't do what the curriculums that were out there were telling me what to do. I felt like whatever I did was never enough. And so I just kind of did this plotting thing and just relied heavily on narration. And as my children got older, I relied on different forms of narration. So it, it was oral, but 
Um, and we were doing written narration, but I have a child who does beautiful comic work. And so she would do her narrations in three panel comics and they were very insightful and it was often interesting to me what she absorbed. They acted things out. My son did lots with stop animation. So he would go into his room and take his Lego figures and my narration, he'd do a stop animation and sit down and, and I would get to see what he had read and how he had, um, presented those ideas back in, in video form. Like, so lots of creativity around how I was handling that, but no real writing. And then as they moved into high school, then I really started to panic. So I have late readers. I have late writers who are in high school. Most of them are talking about wanting to go to university. What am I going to do? And so I did try to introduce essays. We read lots of personal essays. They tended to read more literary essays, but we also read persuasive essays and, I would get whatever books I could out from the library. And I, I really do feel like I tried all of the homeschool writing curriculums, but because of my son's delays and, you know, we were delayed to begin with. And then my son was heavily delayed and there were, you know, if he gets to do his narrations with video, why can't I do my narrations with video? And there's five of them and it was tiring and overwhelming. And so it was just this hodgepodge. I just felt like I was throwing things at them. Okay, so this is a pre-season, this is a summary, and this is a character sketch. And I don't actually think we produced much writing beyond what would be form two, maybe low-level form three written narrations in high school. And then the one thing I did require when my children chose to go to, well, two things happened. They, my children all have their black belts in karate. And one of the things that they have to do, they can't get their black belt till they're 16. And one of the requirements is that they have to write a 2000 word essay on what karate means to them. And so that was an outside influence that they wanted to do. So there was lots of buy in there and I was able to walk them through and we would read literary essays. And so that was a huge learning process. For all of them and it was easy for me to do it because it wasn't me requiring it and then the other thing is when my kids went to university our university has an academic writing course it is an introductory course um, I, you get credit for it but you can't use it towards any of your degrees but it teaches you how to write an academic paper and it takes you through the whole thing it does um, bibliographies list of works cited it looks at whether you're using ALA or I can't even remember what the other one is off the top of my head, um, just takes them all the way through and they have to write at each part of that and they have to create and submit and be graded on that. And my children have all gone on to do really well in post-secondary with their writing. My oldest, who didn't read till she was nine, she actually has a communications degree. She won several awards and scholarships while she was in school. My next youngest is pursuing a creative writing and rhetoric degree. She's just been accepted into the honors program. And my son, who has severe writing disability, is, is maintaining an excellent GPA. I mean, I don't really know how, <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and he needs a lot of work. So he has to have people correct his grammar and that because he's not very good at grammar and spelling, but he has lots of ideas and he'll narrate and he uses voice to text recognition and he gets his ideas out there. And so I think that I threw enough at them at some weird random level that they were able to pick up stuff, but. I feel like it wasn't organized. It certainly wasn't systematic. It certainly didn't feel like it was a Charlotte Mason education. I don't feel like it built. And I feel like 
you know, the, the one thing that I think really benefited my children is we had done a lot of the discussion part and the narration. And so they had lots of ideas about what they wanted to write. And in the end, it was the mechanics that they were missing. And thankfully, they were able to catch on in their university academic course and and take that forward. But it's certainly not what I want for my last child here at home, who's just um, 13, and we're heading into this. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to do it differently. I'd like to do it more like you just described that it should be. So I had a similar but kind of different experience um, with my daughter. She had a very difficult time um, writing. We never got a diagnosis. Um, I never went in and paid for the testing. But looking at where she is now and looking back and looking at her struggles, I am confident that she would get a dyslexia diagnosis and probably dysgraphia. Her older brother was tested by the um, by the high school when he was in public school, and he was given a diagnosis of specific language disability. And when I asked if that meant dyslexia, they told me we're not allowed to use that term anymore. So I don't know if that was the new guidelines or if that was that the public school was not certified to give that diagnosis which I, I suspect it was the latter, that they're just not supposed to write it down on the IEP unless it's an outside person. Um, but anyway, she has the same issues as my, um, as my son. And she said that she struggled in college because she realized, and she didn't realize this later, but she... Um, she has a very difficult time comprehending text. Mm. So when I when we did all the reading aloud, um, and she listened to audiobooks, that was great. She had no trouble understanding. But when she had to read it herself, it was very difficult for her to understand. So um, going from that, I used a the brave writer approach, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm slamming Brave Writer at all. I'm just saying what our specific experience 10 years ago was with, with the Brave Writer materials, and they have much more than they did at the time. But at the time, they had um, Writer's Jungle, and they had help for high school. So because I didn't understand the foundations of Charlotte Mason writing at that time, and everybody said on the forums that I was on that Brave Writer was this wonderful Charlotte Mason way to do writing and it's very natural and it's very organic and it's very fun. I thought that was a wonderful idea and I loved it. And it was, it was wonderful and it was fun. And my daughter finally started writing. Um, then when she got to high school, she started writing um, because it was pulling teeth, right? It was pulling teeth to get her to write anything she wanted to write a novel. And so I thought, well, great. <laughs> That's at least writing, right? Yeah. And so she did an entire year or two of writing a novel, and she did, um, she did wonderful. But so what happened with all of that, um, even though we, we did go through Help for High School twice, the Brave Writer, at least at that time, had no emphasis at all on academic writing. It was purely creative writing. And as we can see in the Charlotte Mason education for forms four, five, and six, 
that's really when you hit the essays hard. And that is much more what we would now consider academic writing, is how to write an essay. And because we weren't reading that, um, and we weren't practicing any of that, she had no idea how to do that. And I didn't hold her hand enough. We did one or two essays. So the mis a big mistake that I made, and I can now looking back and um, seeing other writing programs out there that are, are I think are very good, is that even when they get older, you really have to hold their hand. And you can't just say, this is the way to do it, now go do it, and I'm going to correct it, and now you know how to do it, and we don't have to look at this anymore, because now you know. That's not how it works. You have to practice over and over and over, and the student will develop over time. And that's what we see with Charlotte Mason also, right? Three years of writing essays and writing literary analysis and writing, reading essays this whole time and, and learning all of this stuff, but it's still practice, 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 practice. And, and you're doing it with interesting things, but you're still practicing it. And um, I didn't do that. So when she got to college, she's a fabulous creative writer, but she really struggled with the creative writing. Um, not, I'm sorry, she really struggled with the academic writing. Um, and, yeah, she really struggled with academic writing. And it's not something, and here's the thing, is people say, well, if they have this foundation of great creative writing, it's very easy for them to pick up the mechanics of academic writing once they go to college. But it's not necessarily. It really mm -hmm. isn't because she didn't. She and even though she tested, she was tested by the Gifted Development Center in Denver, and she tested as gifted um, in language arts and math, and she qualified to go to the John Hopkins University or John Hop Johns Hopkins University Center for Gifted Youth. I think that's the name of it for language. Um, she still. What she needed was she needed me as a parent to have held her hand through multiple essays of teaching her how to do it. And when I say hold her hand, what I mean is there's this great, oh gosh, it's on my shelf somewhere. I don't see it. But I have a fabulous writing curriculum for K through 8. And I might end up using that for 7 to for 8th grade for my daughter. Um, I'm not quite sure yet because it doesn't follow the Charlotte Mason education for, you know, K through six. Um, but the idea with it is you start, you go through each assignment at least three times. You're choosing different topics, but you're doing the format three times. The first one, you are doing it almost entirely, but with input from your kid. The second time, you're doing it together. But your child, now that she knows the format, um, you are giving input while she's doing the writing. The third time through, you're just helping little bits along the way. And it might take six times or it might take eight times or it might even take longer. But those are the steps. You start off with you're doing it with input from them. And then you're doing it together. And then they're doing it almost entirely alone with just a little bit of input from you. And it's that same progression that we can see 
through um, Charlotte Mason, even though she didn't say it in quite that way, it's all this step-by-step, step-step-step progression. Um, well, that's how doctors learn, right? Right. You, you see one, you assist with one, you do one. Yeah, that's the same thing. So that's my story. Um, they, they need, you know, and even if they're not going to go on to college, you need writing no matter what you do. And you need to be able to write decently, even if not well. And, yes, you can work around that. I will also say, though, that even if your child does not learn to write well ever, that doesn't mean that they'll be a failure in life, right? Yeah. Because sometimes developmentally, they're just not there until they're older, and then they don't care when they're older because they found a different, a different area that they don't need to write a whole lot, or it grows with them. They learn what they need at the time, and then that's it. They don't need to do any more. So I also want to encourage parents that if they have a child who – so I'm going to use an example of my son who is in public school. He was public schooled his entire time. He was on an IEP. Um, he graduated high school and was not able to write a complete sentence. Right now, he is 29 years old. He's a welder. He's making six figures. He's got a house. He's got a wife. They've been married for nine years now. Yep. They've been married for nine years. He's got two kids and one on the way. He has a great job with great benefits. And even though he still can't write a complete sentence, he still is going through life just fine. Yes. Because you can find find other things. So we're talking about Charlotte Mason writing here, but I just also want to reassure people that if their kids never get to a point where they're good writers, that it's not the end of the world either. Getting back, because this is a Charlotte Mason podcast, right? So one of the things that we were talking about earlier, um, Jennifer and I, was how difficult it is to find writing curricula that follows a Charlotte Mason philosophy. Because it has to be pretty specific, right? We don't, we're not looking for an overarching everything English. We're looking for specifically writing. Well, and I think those things about... Um, Charlotte's education that are important, you know, short lessons, they build on one another, they're living, they're supposed to be inspiring, they're supposed to engage our students own, you know, set them on fire about something. I've had trouble finding a program that does that. It feels like they're all front end loaded where we're learning everything all at once and then doing it or they don't do it that way at all or they feel too piecemeal yeah, I, ha- I haven't found one that I, I felt was reflective of what Charlotte thought it should look like. And and all the other ones I tried, I couldn't make work in that way. So if anyone finds or knows of anything that they think it is, please let us know. Right, because by us saying that we haven't found it doesn't mean it's not out there. That's right. Yeah, it just means that we haven't seen it specifically ourselves yet, but we are definitely looking for it so did we leave you with any questions or comments or concerns Miriam the confidence (laughs) (laughs) truly knowing that even if you make mistakes even if you're not sure what you're doing in the end it will be okay or at least you can figure it out when you get there 
and filling gaps, like you said in the last podcast, Marjorie. It's okay to have hopes. I think so many of us who are just starting out are worried about those holes, and they seem huge. And in the long run, I imagine they'll look a lot smaller once you have the introspect of having gone through it. It's definitely very reassuring. So you did have a question before, though, because you had asked that, and I said, oh, we can answer that in the podcast. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, well, from what you said, what she recommends, how you described it, that was incredible. I'm sure if I actually did that, my kids would be plenty ready enough for college-level writing. What I had asked before was, did you feel like a Charlotte Mason education prepared children um, to enter university and college writing-wise, even though you, you ended up taking a different path? I feel like I did enough of the foundational stuff that it allowed for my kids to make the changes that they needed when they encountered uh, academic writing. So even though I felt like I failed them in, in giving them opportunities to learn academic writing while they were homeschooled, because I was doing already a lot of, of a Charlotte Mason education, we were doing, like I said, we were reading essays, we were reading preces, we were reading character sketches, and we were narrating those We heavily, heavily, like narration. There was a lot of narration in my home, even though it wasn't perhaps um, as much written as I would have liked. I feel like even that base foundational level allowed my children to make what was a difficult transition. It was difficult. And um, the only reason my son got through it is because he was going to university at home, and he would come home, and him and I would sit down, and we would go through the entire exercise together and we would read the book together. And so he had his own little personal tutor helping him go through this course. And it was nice that it was somebody else who had to, to tell him what he needed to be doing differently. But, but yeah, the foundation of a Charlotte Mason education that I was able to provide my children, even if it was done sloppily or not as well as I would have was enough for my children to move into the post-secondary, but I would like to do better. So you had also asked us, Miriam, about your, your son, Lucas? Oh, <laughs> that was more common. Oh, that boy hates writing. Handwriting. <laughs> Handwriting. But he, he loves the, the creative writing. We um, do that every Monday, and he's so excited. It's just one of those. We have the, the 12 little tales, the fairy cards, and we pull out one, and it, we'll say a few sentences, and he'll just he'll go leaps and bounds and tell this incredible story, and he loves that. The actual handwriting, which you said isn't um, the the same as composition, but he uh, he's he's not a fan. And I know that it seems like it's very normal at that age to not enjoy handwriting. His sister, she she loves it, but he <laughs> no he he doesn't. But you guys have also reassured me that that's that's very normal. I have two boys. It took them longer to acquire the fine motor skills to to do writing. And my my younger son, who doesn't have any learning disabilities, is um, he's a really good handwriter. He has lovely readable uh, text, and but it, he did not he didn't really write until he was almost in high school. I guess. I mean, he did copy work, but not happily ever. <laughs> So I think we would also say that when your child is eight years old and you're thinking about, well, I don't know what he's going to be like when he's 14 or 15, but it's okay. 
you know, we have no idea what your kids are going to be like when they're 14 or 15. They change so much in between them, in between that time span. If your kid, when he's eight years old, he hates writing, that doesn't mean he's going to hate it when he's 14. He might still, you know, that's fine too. Um, but then also, if you're just looking at purely the mechanics of handwriting versus composition and writing, I don't think that there's any sort of restriction saying that it has to be written out by hand. And I think that's a good thing uh, using a computer or a typewriter could be a very good substitute. Actually, my daughter learned spelling much better once she started typing out her stories because of the autocorrect. Well, it wasn't the autocorrect at the time, but it would put the little dots underneath it underneath the words so that she could see that it was spelled wrong. We did a completely different topic, kind of. We ended up using a, a spelling curriculum specifically made for dyslexic kids, and that's what actually made spelling click for her. But even then, um, having the spell check was very helpful because she could see that it was wrong, and then she could see the suggested... Um, the suggestions for how it should be written. And then she could say, oh, this is the word. And then over time, because this all has to build over time, that's the thing, right? Mm. We keep thinking we should be able to tell our kids one time and that's it. But, you know, we can't do it like that. If, if somebody shows you how to change the oil on your car one time, five years later or three years later, you're not going to remember how to do it. You have to repeatedly do skills in order to have them be part of you and internalized. Um, and I think that was my downfall because when I was in high school myself, writing came very naturally to me. I felt like it came very naturally to me. But in reality, right, our high school teachers, we had writing for years and years and years. And we were taught specifically how to do this. And I thought, well, that's stupid. This is so obvious how to do it. But, you know, repetition over and over. Maybe it was the third time that I read it that I thought, well, yeah, but we've already gone over this twice. I get it now, but maybe I hadn't gotten it before. And there were probably kids in school that that needed that even more repetition. So we were getting that repetition when we were in school, but yet I felt like my own kids should just know, right? Yeah. Because I knew, or I know right now, but we forget that those younger kids, or when they're younger, they don't have that foundation um, necessarily that, that we did. Um, there was one more thing I was going to say right there. I thought of it, and I forgot now. It'll come to me. <laughs> did you have anything to add while, while I'm waiting for it to come to me? Just that... Like, it takes a long time to grow up. And even if you don't have those skills or you're still struggling with those skills, it's what you were saying about your son at 20 or 21 or 22 or 30, it doesn't mean that you can't sit down and, and acquire those skills if you need them at some point in time. Or you'll adapt and figure out how you do what you need to do without having to use those skills that way. And, yeah, I think writing is a really difficult subject. It's a really difficult subject for a lot of people. It's difficult for us to, to understand. It's difficult for us to teach. It's difficult for us to correct in our children. It's a very vulnerable subject. It's, it's our own personal thoughts that we are putting out there 
for people to criticize, whether it just be how we spelt it or how we formed our A or the actual thought that we wrote out. And I think we forget that. We forget that this is something very vulnerable and we do. We have to move slowly and we have to have lots of grace and we have to be very gentle. I remembered what I was going to say now. I started using, I bought Michael Clay, I think it's Thomas Thompson. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. So I bought his academic writing. At the time, that was the highest level that was out was academic writing one. When my daughter was 14 years old, because I was pregnant um, with my, my younger daughter, and I felt like she should be able to do this independently. But because she's at that age, right? 14, that's when you're supposed to start writing essays. So she started it, and it was just beyond her at that point. And perhaps if I hadn't been pregnant and sick, I could have walked her through it and it would have worked fine. But she, she just wasn't able to do it on her own. But I think it's a really good program. And when she was in college, I gave it to her um, on one of her times coming back. And she said, this is fabulous. I wish I had done this in high school. But, you know, here's the thing is when she was in high school older, 15 to 16, 17 years old, I thought, well, when she was 14, this was too much for her. Mm-hmm. So we need something else. But I wasn't thinking at the time about how, you know what, maybe she just needs another year or two of maturity. Yes. And she could. we could have done it when she was 16 or 17, even though on the website it's listed as being for like grade 8 or grade 9. I don't remember what it says anymore. But it was written for gifted writers but you know just gifted is such a a strange word because it implies that everybody should then be at this level if they have the gifted label and doesn't take into account other um other learning disabilities or learning differences or even just i know thank you or even just individual brain development mm-hmm. that reminds me of something i see a lot um Maybe you can help with this, Jennifer, maybe some reassurance. I, I've seen a lot of people ask um, at age 6, 7, 8, 9, even 10, my kids still reverse their letters. Um, my two both do. I know I did it until I was 11, or mere letters, or reverse them. That was normal for me growing up. Um, so I know that they, when I see it in them, it, it doesn't worry me, because I know I... I that too um, but I see that question a lot Jennifer do you have any thoughts on that I um, I think that this is really about your own personal level of comfortability right so I generally am uh, a believer that our, our kids brains will grow and develop and make changes and so I usually well I let my kids be late readers I let them be late writers. I let them be bad spellers. The Charlotte Mason approach to spelling didn't really work (laughs) or didn't seem to work in my house. And yet I found that my children have over the years picked up spelling. And and even my son, he's very much like um, Marjorie's daughter. He uses the, the suggestions he uses. He's on Grammarly now. He loves Grammarly. And his spelling is improving because he's seeing it corrected and he's making those corrections himself. So I have a tendency to wait it out. Let's see. But at some point in time, I have sought diagnoses. I have been, I'm, I'm not, it's keeping me awake at night. 
it's keeping me awake at night worrying about whether this is going to be a big issue. Is this something I'm missing? Do I need to do something about that? And so that's when I've sought outside help. That's when I got the speech pathologist. That's when I, you know, we went and had him diagnosed so that we could see what helps, what we could do um, that might make things better or easier for him. That's meant I might have invested in a, a curriculum that would have helped. So I think really it's more about your comfort level and what you're, you're feeling is can you wait it out? Can you give another year? Can you give it six months? Can you just put it away on the shelf for a bit? A year is a long time to do a lot of growing in the brain. But also if it's concerning you and worrying you, then yeah, check out and see what you can do. Go and have them assessed if that's available for you. Does that answer the question? It doesn't really answer your question maybe, but. That's reassuring. And some things, I think I only don't worry about it because I had the same experience, things that they may have been doing that I've worried terribly about. So it is, I love that advice. You know, if you feel like it's something you should look into, that's great. But a lot of times it is something they'll they'll grow out of too. I think that's the whole thing Charlotte calls the benign neglects, right? Let it go, but it also has to be caring. And so if you feel that the level of care is required to be more, then you need to do that. Do you regret waiting to get your, your son assessed? I don't now because I feel like there's a little bit of a happy ending. Um, But I can't be honest and say that I wonder if we'd done it when he was 12, if some of the hard learning he's had these two years while he's at university might have been made less stressful for him. And little things like he can't, he, he can't, he can't carry his part-time job and go to school at the same time. Like my, my children are all paying for their own education. And so they're working and they're going to school and he's, we've had to um, make some workarounds. He has got some special loans from the government for that, but he can't carry those too. And I wonder if I'd had him assessed and if we'd maybe been able to help him with skill development, but I don't know, maybe we would have had him assessed at 12 and it wouldn't have made any difference. Maybe his brain would have needed for him to turn 18 and, and, the road wouldn't have looked any different. It would have just been more stressful. I don't know. So some days I do, some days I don't. Mine couldn't handle the part-time job at the same time as college also. We had that same experience. And she felt like she should be able to because mm-hmm. other kids could. Well, my friend Mandy, can. she's getting a 4.0 and she's working 20 to 30 hours a week. And um, so she felt bad about herself. She yes. felt like she was less... But, you know, when I was in nursing school, I couldn't, I, I quit my job because I couldn't do both. And I think that's a reality for a lot of students. But we have a tendency to hold up the ones who can manage really well in that arena. And we say that this is the only arena and this is how you should excel in it. And we do that with writing. This is the only arena and this is how you should excel at it. And that's not true at all. Right. Okay. So this has been a longer podcast than most. Let's do a quick nature minute and then we shall sign off. And please remember that if you come across a, or if you know of already a high school writing curriculum that is step-by-step is sequential, but is still living and relevant and interesting and only teaches writing and does not teach all this other stuff, let us know so that we can take a look at it too. 
So what's going on outside my door is, um, I mentioned this in the last one, we've got lots of green. We have lots of green. We don't have grass here. It just doesn't exist without being watered. But when we get rain, we get about four one-hundredths of an inch at a time. So it keeps the ground just damp which is perfect for seedlings, which would be perfect for seedlings if we also had the daylight hours, but we don't yet. So the seedlings are growing, but they're growing really, really slowly. And I just saw a butterfly outside my window, which means pretty soon we will need to start looking for the caterpillars on the plants and see if we can bring one inside and and let it grow into something other than a moth. So we're in a super deep freeze up here, and sometimes that's good because it's uh, clear nights and it's very easy to see the northern lights. But a few weeks ago, we were driving home late at night, and there were these odd lights in the sky, and it's like, oh, are those the northern lights? And we're in the car, and everyone was arguing about, no, they're not the northern lights, because look, if you look around there, some in the south, and they seem too vertical, and they're not shimmery, and they don't have the colors and all the it was really interesting to hear them discussing were they northern lights or not. And then when they got home, they, they were so funny. They all got on the internet to prove each other wrong. And it turns out they were not northern lights. It turns out with our very cold weather, there's a lot of ice crystals in the atmosphere. And it's not just in the upper atmosphere, it's in the lower atmosphere. And what we were actually seeing is lights from the city being reflected four or 500 feet into the air through the the crystals and so these pillars of light were actually just our street lamps it was beautiful but so what we thought was nature was was not it was just man-made but i guess not man-made because all those ice crystals are what made it look like it was natural right natural manifestation yeah yeah miriam i'll leave uh today it's really stormy and cloudy out i've got the window open fully and it's this dark I didn't want to turn on the light, though, because it's right in my face. But this weather, it came after. We had some really beautiful days. And (laughs) Jennifer, last podcast, you were talking about the bunnies in your yard, and it reminded me. I was sitting on the porch, because it's so beautiful out, just watching, and our dog was out just exploring, and he takes off really fast. And I'm like, oh, no, what's he he going after? And it was a bunny. Luckily, it, it got under the fence, and I was like, whew. And I'm thinking, oh, no, there's there's got to be a nest there with baby bunnies. So I got him to come in. And the <laughs> the nest, by the time I got there, it, it was empty. So I think the, the mother bunny came and she got her babies in time. I'm so glad they they didn't get eaten by our dog. So we're, we're seeing more and more bunnies and the, the birds now that the weather's warming up. That's lovely. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Wildwood Curriculum Podcast, Stone Chats. For more information about our free secular and inclusive curriculum based on the works of 19th century educator Charlotte Mason, please visit us at wildwoodcurriculum.org.